We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, One Nation Under Baseball, How the 1960s Collided with the National Pastime. The publisher, University of Nebraska Press. The authors, John Florio and Wheezy Shapiro. Please join me as we welcome John and Wheezy to the clubhouse. And right on cue, we have the legendary Sam Weinbaum. I'm a legend. <laughs> uh, I think your son saved you a seat, or he saved, he saved you, uh, his mom a seat anyway. Uh, yeah, Alice and Sam, come on in. To those listening to the podcast, you'll have to figure it out on your own. Uh, just a quick uh, short bio, mainly for those listening. Uh, John Florio is a freelance writer and novelist. He is the author of Sugar Pop Moon and Blind Moon Alley. Weezy Shapiro is an Emmy-winning writer and producer of sports documentaries. Her writing credits include HBO's Nine Innings from Ground Zero, uh, which makes me cry every time, and ESPN's Playing for the Mob. Florio and Shapiro are the authors of One Punch from the Promised Land, Leon Spinks, Michael Spinks, and The Myth of the Heavyweight Title. They are also contributors to The Atlantic and The New Yorker, and I really appreciate that both of you could join us this evening. And just to get us going, uh, if you could just let us know how this book came about. Well, it started with the idea of doing a book about a book. And the book, the subject, was Ball Four, Jim Bouton's Ball Four. So we thought, you know, we, we started thinking about that book and how it really was, it was a real game changer in baseball and really in all of sports. And we thought, you know, no one's really written anything about the writing of the book and how it came to be. And then, the more we talked about it, the more we realized it wasn't a big enough topic to write a book about. But then we thought, well, that book came out in 1970, so what did baseball look like in 1960, 10 years earlier? Could, could Ball Four have been written in 1960? And I think clearly the answer was no. Um, the country wasn't ready for it. I mean, it wasn't even ready for it in 1970. And um, we thought about, wow, 1960, well, that was Jim Brosnan. And um, he had written those two books in 60 and 62, um, The Pennant Race and um, long The Long Season. And they were, I mean, they were pretty mild when it came to revealing what, what went on um, behind closed doors. And we started thinking about what, what happened in that decade between 1960 and 1970. Excuse me for one second. The real difference between, you know, people think back on Jim Bouton's Ball Four, which was going to be the topic of our book. And they look at it as the first real tell-all in baseball. And in a lot of ways, it was. He knocked down the locker room door. He told stories about Mantle from the 64 team. It was essentially really a, a memoir of the 60, his 69 season with the Pilots. But he told about, in backstory, his career in baseball and put the players in not very flattering light. He made them look like uh, overgrown children. They were doing a lot of, uh, they were climbing up to the roof of the Shoreham Hotel and looking into uh, into uh, hotel windows trying to see women undress. And this was very salacious at the time. The other book that Weezy's talking about and what we started thinking was, it really wasn't the first. Jim Brosnan had written 
the long season 10 years earlier, but it was very tame in comparison. It was an interesting book in that it told what it was like to go through a long season, to be a pitcher, to go through all of this. But we looked at all the events that happened from Brosnan's book to Bounton's book. And you know, you had uh, a lot changing in sports writing in, in newspapers. You had uh, new journalism with Gates Lease and Tom Wolfe come in the middle of the 60s. And that started looking at more realistic storytelling, more breaking down of mythologies. Gates Lease wrote the famous Frank Sinatra has a cold about Sinatra. And he broke down the, the wall and was telling the truth. So it kind of paved the way for Bounton to come along. But then we, we still felt, you know, well, there were other things that happened, and we started talking about race, right? And the well, we, union. we looked at 1960 in terms of race in baseball and what was going on, and we, you know, we realized that in 1960 and 61, well, the early 60s, really up until the mid-60s, um, black major leaguers going to spring training in Florida weren't able to stay with, in the same hotel with the team. They weren't able to eat in the same restaurants as the team. They, I mean, they, this was Jim Crow South, and they were segregated, and, you know, here they were. They were stars on the baseball field, but in, in ordinary life, they were second-class citizens, and it was just kind of astonishing um, that that had happened, and then... And we, when we spoke about that, we looked at it and thought, well, you know, again, people think the game was integrated in 47, the same way people thought Bounton had the first book. The game was integrated in 47 when Jackie Robinson played. Well, that's not really true. Here we have segregation in the Jim Crow South, right, during spring training. But then when we were talking, I don't remember when it came up, but then we realized, well, gee, the first all-minority lineup in baseball, nine minorities to take the field, was with the 71 Pirates. So that was another thing that really changed from 61 to 71. I mean, it's not exactly 60 to 70, but it's essentially the same years. So we realized that the arc of that story happened at the same time. And then the other... Arc that we cover in the book is the uh, unionization, right? Tell, tell them how we came about with that. Well, and another thing is, if you look back at the early '60s, um, you know, the decade opens with the owners in full control of the players. I mean, they they have a monopoly, and um, the players can't negotiate contracts. They have two choices: you either play at the price we're going to pay you, or you quit, because uh, you, you don't have any other choices, and. Um, you know, by 1970, actually by 1975 with, with free agency, the players, the, the whole balance of power had shifted so dramatically and the players had a bona fide union because before that it was just a company union. And um, they, they had a very strong union, the most powerful union in sports. And, um, and then other leagues followed suit. And, um, and the pivoting point was right in the middle of the decade again when Marvin Miller took over the Players Association. So we started looking at it and saying, well, you know, which one of these is going to be the book? And then we started realizing, well, maybe this, all of it's the book. And then instead of following one character, we're going to follow the, 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 the 60s are really our, our protagonist or our hero. You know, that's really, we're following the 60s. We're not following, there's a lot of recurring characters and recurring themes, but we're really following that as our. Yeah, and those three reference. arcs are really what the, the story is. It's, you know, it's race. It's the unionization of the game, it's, and it's the, the press coverage um, of the game, because that also, you know, I don't think Jim Bouton could have written Ball Four. He could have written Ball Four in 1970, but nobody would have published it. I mean, 1960, so. Well, you t uh, it's, your discussion has just been very interesting, and the stories you tell in the book are, are really beautifully written and very interesting. And I'm not even sure where to start with the first question otherwise, but maybe, uh, 
since it was something I had never heard before, and my guess is a lot of people have never heard the, uh, this phrase before, uh, you, you mentioned the press. Uh, if you could just talk a little bit about chipmunks, uh, that, that angle of the, uh, of the story. You, wanna? you can go. Well, the, in the middle of the, the decade, you know, when, when the 60s started out, there was a lot of myth building uh, on, in, in sports writing. You know, you had uh, Mickey Mantle, every, everything that was written about them. I, I forget some of the titles, but, you know, Joe DiMaggio, Proud to be a Yankee. You know, all of these are really uh, hagiographies that were written. And then um, what happened was there was a second edition of, of the newspapers that started coming out, an afternoon edition. So the, the morning guys were covering the score in the game, and the afternoon guys <clears throat> didn't have as much to really cover because they, people already knew the score. They had to fill space and get you to the next game that was that night. So these guys started looking for other stories to, uh, to fill the paper, and they started asking, you know, more, they were telling more stories about the players' that, uh, lives than they were necessarily about what was going on in the field. So those groups, group of guys who, who really, by the way, all of these young, they were mostly young guys, Stan Isaacs, right, who else was in there, Steve Jacobson, um, uh, Larry Merchant was right. a chipmunk. And they right? were college educated as opposed to the older, the older school writers like uh, Jimmy Cannon and um, Dick Young. Um, and they, they brought a different attitude to the game. So Jimmy Cannon sees them all one day covering something. I don't remember what they were talking about. Jimmy Cannon's the old school sports writer. And he looks over at them and he said, look at you guys, I mean, with total disdain. Uh, look at you guys, you sound like a bunch of chipmunks, little furry chipmunks. And they, not wanting to be like Cannon, wanting to be the new school, wanting to do something fresh, looked at it like a badge of honor. I think they got themselves blazers that said chipmunks sweatshirts. on it. Sweatshirts that said chipmunks on it. <clears throat> and they really wrapped their arms around the moniker. And um, <clears throat> they were part of the arc. When we were talking about the three arcs that we're telling, when you look at journalism, you start with the, the uh, myth building. Then really you have the chipmunks and then new journalism. The chipmunks are, are one of the things that have really paved the way for Jim Bouton to write ball for at the end of the decade. Yeah, and what, an area that kind of overlaps that one of these arts that you uh, speak about, uh, the union and Marvin Miller. Your story is fascinating. I think a lot of people know about Marvin Miller taking over and running the union. Mm -hmm. But I, the, the story you tell about how that came to be, uh, that he wasn't even going to run the, uh, be the head of the union in the beginning. It just, he was like the second choice in effect. And how much the owners came, uh, obviously knew this guy is potentially a lot of trouble. <laughs> and then the story you tell about Bowton with Marvin Miller going to see Bowie Coon, the commissioner, mm. uh, and he gets called in. Uh, so anything you want to touch on about any of that, feel free. Well, the, um Jim Bouton going to what happened was in, in once the book came out, uh, Ball Four, which we were speaking about, the, the advance word came out with an excerpt in Look Magazine. And Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner of baseball, who was really a, uh, a puppet uh, for the owners. I mean, one of, the, one of the, my favorite lines in the book is not ours, but Red Smith said, uh, talking about Bowie Kuhn, said, an empty limousine pulled up and Bowie Kuhn got out. <laughs> so that, that's an idea of what Bowie Kuhn's uh, spine was like. So he calls in Bouton, um, and he's going to give him a dressing down because of this look excerpt. But what Bowie Kuhn and the owners were really upset about wasn't that Jim Bouton had written these stories about his fellow players. They were really upset about the fact that he had divulged 
the contract negotiations that went on between the teams, the owners didn't want that to get out. They didn't want one player to know what the other player was making. They didn't want, them, they didn't want the public knowing that they had this kind of stronghold on the players. They wanted to make it look like an idyllic sport. So Bowie Kuhn calls in Jim Bouton, and Bouton comes in, and uh, in his words, he said, the place was decorated in lots of mahogany and old authority. <laughs> And, uh, and he brought with him Marvin Miller, the head of the union, and right. Dick Moss, the um, general counsel for the union, and his editor on the book, Ball Four, um, Leonard, Schechter, Leonard Schechter, who was a chipmunk. Oh, who was a chipmunk. Right. So they're all in the room, and um, well, they're, they're, they're sitting in the room, they're having their conversation, but meanwhile, there were some protesters outside saying that, that Bouton should be let go. And, uh, we were able to track down those protesters now and interview them for the, in, in the book. There were some stories of them talking about the book, and they, they, they spoke about while the meeting was going on, they're on the streets thinking how badly Bowie Kuhn had misfired because they were thinking, Bouton only made Mickey Mantle look cooler. Like he was, <laughs> like he, he, Jim Bouton became to them, and I think they spoke for really most of the young people at the time, an anti-establishment figure. There were so many things going on at the time. There was Vietnam mainly, but there were so many other issues going on, civil rights uh, riots and, and what else, uh, other things that were going. So that he took on this uh, anti-establishment role, Bouton, which he doesn't really understand to this day, the significance of what he had done. But what's going on inside the office is Bowie Kuhn says to him, well, you know, this is bad for Bay. It's so disgusting what you've written that I couldn't even let my son read this. I mean, it's just absolutely sickening. Uh, you have something in there that uh, Euler says to Bell, uh, I, left your socks, I left my socks under your bed last night. You've got to bring them home. You know, people are going to think that the players are sleeping with each other's wives. And Bowden said, well, you know, that joke goes back about 20 years. I mean, that thing's told in every high school classroom. But, but Kuhn didn't really get it. So he said, well, I'm telling you, you can't write baseball anymore. You can't, you, you can't do this anymore. And that's when Marvin Miller came in and said, well, what are you telling him he can't do anymore? He can't write. He can't write about baseball. He can't use four-letter words. What can he do? And um, eventually, because Marvin Miller was there and the Players Association was in place, um, the meeting ended up not doing much other than giving Bounton headlines across the country and making him, at the time, the biggest sports writer in the country. That was a complete misfire on Kuhn's part. You know. And so now to move on to another arc, which I specifically left. Uh, we could speak about this for uh, decades. Uh, race. And you have mentioned uh, that about segregation in, during spring training in Florida. So now we're in the 60s. And as you mentioned, uh, John, Jackie Robinson came along in 1947. So now we're in the 60s. And there's segregation in, during spring training in Florida. If you could just speak a little bit about that to get us going on that. Well, when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, it just really remained very marginally integrated for many, many years. And, um, you know, there were a few teams that, I mean, basically every team had maybe one or two black players by the late 60s. But so many teams had, you know, were majority white. And um, I, don't, I don't think that, I mean, I think that baseball, you know, they, they're just very slow to, to move into the future in every, in every way. And so when 
this, um, there was a sports writer, an African-American sports writer for the, um, well, he wrote for a couple of newspapers, but one was the Pittsburgh Courier, Wendell Smith, mm -hmm. and he was revealing, he was furious, and he started writing articles about what was going on in Florida in spring training mm -hmm. in the early 60s, urging Major League Baseball to do something about the fact that African-American players were, were segregated and living in segregated housing. I mean, there are stories of Bill White, um, the, who played for the Cardinals, coming to spring, his first spring training in Florida, and he shows up at the team hotel, and he goes to the front desk, and he asks for the key to his room, and the desk clerk says to him, uh, do you not understand? You're not staying here. And then he gives them an address of a woman who runs a, owns a rooming house across town in that black section of town. Because White says, was from Ohio, right? So, I mean, he was coming from a northern... Yeah, he you was know, coming from yeah. an integrated city yeah, himself. Yeah. Um, although he had encountered a lot of racism during um, his stay in the minors, you know, because he'd been throughout the South. One, one of the stories in the book is of a breakfast, a Chamber of Commerce breakfast in Florida that Bill White was not invited to. No black players were invited to. Um, the Cardinals and the Yankees were having this breakfast because they both played at Al Lang Field at the time, and um, and White was furious that he wasn't uh, that he wasn't invited, and he was getting answers like they uh, I, somebody actually it was not to Bill White, but somebody had told Elston Howard right. on the Yankees um, the reason you weren't invited is because the breakfast was in the hotel, and we thought it would be easier for the players staying in the hotel to to come to the breakfast. Which, you know, what he didn't say was no black players were allowed to stay in the hotel. So how were they possibly going to be in the hotel to go to the breakfast? breakfast? <laughs> but in Bill White's case, they asked... And then uh, the team yeah. said, the, yeah. the PR guy for the Yankees said, well, we can't get in touch with him to let him know about the breakfast. And he said... Well, that was the Cardinals. We couldn't get in touch with Bill White. Yeah. And, and, he, and he said, how can you not get in touch with him? He plays for your team. He plays first I mean, base. You know where he is. I mean, how could, you not, how could you not find the guy? But it was Wenzel Smith who said, this really brings out... Um, what's going on because his answer of we couldn't find Bill White to invite him shows how separate the black players were from the rest of the team that when they weren't on the field the uh, the GMs didn't even know where they were they just said you know you have to find housing and weren't even sure where they were staying what, what some of them stayed at the uh, local NAACP uh, president's house Ralph Wimbish he was a doctor in the area and they would stay at his home and we interviewed his son um, and Bill White, both about th that situation. And um, the son was telling us that uh, he said, I had the greatest life in the world. Like, I didn't really realize what, why they were staying and what was going on. But, you know, I would come downstairs or I, I would, when, sometimes I would leave my bed, bedroom and not sleep on the couch so that the bed could be there for Elston Howard. Uh, Cap Calloway, I think right. he also stayed. Yeah. He said, like, every major black star, Bob Gibson, um, Kurt Flood, all of these guys, when they were in town, would stay at the house and, and swim in the, in the pool. And um, so he grew up with this childhood going, yeah, I didn't realize what was going on, but I knew every major black star, like in America, because whenever they were in Florida, they were staying in my bedroom. <laughs> you have some great stories in this book, too, about Kurt Flood, uh, Gibson, uh, Hank Aaron, uh, really very enlightening stories. And... Uh, I should also just say that a uh, little shout out since you mentioned these interviews, it's uh, in the back of the book, that bibliography where you have the, who you interviewed, the date, when you interviewed them. Mm -hmm. It's clear that how much work you put into this. Uh, 
Yeah, the, the, excuse me, but some of the interviews uh, I think we're particularly proud of because they were, they were tough gets, as they would say, and Bill White is certainly one of them. So uh, if Bill's listening to this podcast, we should thank him right now. <laughs> you know, um, were, there, were there other people who were particularly, uh, Andrew Young, Andrew Young yeah. uh, to speak about civil rights and the formation of Atlanta and bringing the Braves there? Um, you know, was a very big uh, get, and Jim Bowden was very accommodating. A lot of people were, but some of them, um, they're almost so accommodating, they don't get the thank you they deserve because they, they are available for interviews. It was right. the tougher ones you want to give the bigger thank you to, um, and it's, it's kind of strange because you're giving them a thank you because they do fewer interviews. <laughs> but we, we thank them personally for giving us the time. Well, and also Bob Costas for writing a really and thoughtful, Bob, yeah. I, th I thought a really thoughtful preface. Yeah. yeah. Were there any, I mean, you don't have to say their names if you don't want to, but were there any people that you wanted to interview who just refused? Um, well, I don't know if, if is, is not getting an answer or refusal. I mean, Bob Gibson. No, we would have loved to have interviewed Bob Gibson. But he's a very, very tough guy to get, and we tried, but we didn't get him. When but, I was in, um, I think I was in college, and I was writing an article about Bob Gibson's. <laughs> I, was, I was taking it, no, I think this was in grad school, but I was writing an article about Bob Gibson's 1968 season. And um, I was dying, dying to get an interview with him, and I tried every which way. I called everyone I could think of in, in, in baseball to get to him. And finally, somehow or another, my grandfather said, Wait a minute. I think I know Kirk Gowdy. I think Kirk Gowdy can get me can get you to Bob Gibson. And so he finally tracked down Bob Gibson's phone number, and I called, and um, he answered the phone, and I said, "Oh, I'd like to speak to Bob Gibson, please." And he said, "Oh, he doesn't live here." <laughs> <laughs> and I said. Um, Gee, because you sound just like him. <laughs> and um, he said, uh, who is it? And I said, well, um, so I'm nobody, but Kirk Gowdy gave me your phone number and said that I could interview you for, for an, uh, something I'm writing for school. And anyway, he, he finally gave the interview, and it was a great interview. And I, made my, I went to my parents' house, and I made my mother go on the other the extension and take notes just in case I missed anything. And, um, <laughs> So all these years later, I thought, oh, maybe he'll do an interview. And I wrote him a letter, and I said, you probably don't remember, but like a million years ago, I interviewed you, and I was hoping maybe you'd do an interview for this book, and I never heard anything. Yeah. But yeah. He's a very private person. You know, he's also, though, um, an extremely intelligent guy, Bob Gibson. And one of the stories in the book is when he was first coming up, um, the team didn't have him... Um, Stay when they would have pregame meetings about how to pitch to certain batters. Uh, Bob Gibson, I, I think everybody here knows, but was an incredible pitcher. Um, and they would have meetings on how to strategize to pitch to certain batters. And they would tell Bob Gibson, you know, you don't don't come to the meeting. Like you're not able to really understand what we're talking about with the strategy. We'll just tell you, you know, you just go out there and chuck the ball, you know, and we'll talk to the catchers. And when you when you realize what an intelligent guy he is. Um, what an, I mean, that's an insult to anybody. I mean, even if they're, they're the people out on the mound, but for an intelligent guy like Bob Gibson, that's really a shot. So um, that's one of the stories in the book. Um, you know, his anger, um, especially after the Martin Luther King assassination, uh, is what channel, what, that fury after the MLK assassination is really was the, the velocity behind the 1968 season. His anger came out in his pitches. You know, we were able to speak with Tim McCarver, his catcher, 
And uh, Tim McCarver spoke about that, the anger uh, and how he channeled it into every pitch he threw. And, and, and I think I asked McCarver, I said, well, is that really it? Just his, uh, you know, his anger? He said, that and wherever I put my glove, he hit it. <laughs> he said, you know, he said, I never moved my glove an eighth of an inch the entire season. He said, wherever I put it, he said he had remarkable control from the first pitch to the last. But, I mean, he just went out with such a uh, fury that season. You know, he was even unapproachable on the mound. Like, he was just angry. One with, of my with, with, good, with good reason. Yeah. One of my favorite stories in the book is um, Tom Seaver's love of Henry Aaron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and asking, asking for the book. For the yeah, he was, he was a rookie. Yeah. And, and Aaron came into town, and he always wanted to play like Henry Aaron. So he, when Aaron came into town, he said, you know, I have to going to go over and say hello, and he says, you know, hello, and, he, and I think Aaron said, oh, I've heard about you or something, and he said, yeah, uh, well, it was nice meeting you, and he said, uh, you know, I was wondering if I got you a copy of uh, your book, uh, if you would, you know, sign it, you know, he's kind of like, you know, he said, uh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to sign it, you know, or whatever, and uh, the next time Seaver came into town, he went to his locker room, and there was the book sitting on his, uh, in front of his locker, signed and inscribed by Henry Aaron. They became, I, I think they became pretty good friends after that. But, but this was a young kid at the time. He wasn't Tom Seaver yet. You know? <laughs> no, yeah. but he thought that the way Henry Aaron played Conducted baseball himself. and played baseball yeah. was the way to play baseball. He said, I don't think it's strange that a pitcher should be so admiring of a ball player. Um, and I don't think it's strange at all that a white player should be so admiring of a black player. But I, everything that Henry Aaron does, I want to do on the field. Mm-hmm. I have plenty of other questions, but I, I'm glad to turn it over to start from our crowd. So does anyone want to uh, lead off? Adam? Um, I have a question, and this goes back to an interview that Kurt Flood gave, and I think I either heard it on this documentary on HBO or um, the Ken Burns documentary. Um, he said that Gussie Bush was oblivious to what was going on, like to the black players, because Gussie Bush asked, I don't believe any of them yeah, are I don't oblivious. Believe that either. I mean, it's impossible. If you're human, how could you? How be could you not know? I think that they didn't want to know. I think what what happened and what we saw in the case of the uh, with Bill White uh, is the owners knew the black players weren't staying with the white players, or in in this case, other things were going on. They they just figured um, they're handling it, and they must be happy. You know, like if if somebody were to interview them, they'd say, "Oh, the players love the the black players love staying, and they have a wonderful home." But yeah, they don't who know was it? it? Who was um was it, it, it Cleveland Indians? Was it a coach or a manager, who who talked about um segregation during spring training? And he said, "Oh no, no, my players are really happy." Yeah, they're really happy. It. They love it. He and didn't know where they were staying or whatever, but you know, they love it there. And and I guess he thought they loved it because they weren't saying anything. But, and, and the team wasn't really in that situation responsible. It was the hotel in Florida, but the teams did nothing to stick up for the players, and they could have used the, the leverage that they had. So, but I, I don't buy that they didn't now. I, I, I just don't I buy it. I was just curious yeah, about yeah. the whole interaction with Gus and Bush. Yeah. In the 60s, when, uh, with the spring training situation down south, were there white players who, in your interviews or anecdotes, stood out you were willing to? in any way stand up? Not really. Every white player we asked said, uh, 
in truth, we were so worried about staying on the team and making the team that we were so in our own world that what was going on with the black players wasn't on our radar. There were no yeah. low level even insurrections or like this is wrong or? I can't think of one. Sadly. No, and most of them were unaware. They, they really didn't really pay any attention to it. I mean, when we talked to Jim Bowden about what it was like going down to, uh, at one point he was going down to South Carolina <laughs> Um, I think he was in the minors at the time. Mm -hmm. And we said, what, what did you notice? Did you notice Jim Crow laws? And he said, yeah, I did. I noticed that when we would go into these towns, there'd be signs before you entered the town that said, um, they were called sun, they were Sundown called towns and the sign read, you know, N-word, don't let the sun go down on you in this town. And, and you know, when you heard Dick Allen talk about it, Dick Allen would say, and we knew to get the hell out of there before the sun went down. Bouton said, yeah, I saw the sign, and, you know, but it didn't, it didn't affect him. Uh, the one thing I'll say for, for Jim, though, is that he did say, looking back, he said, I'm embarrassed I wasn't more aware of it. He said, but to be, I, he said I was like a young kid and I wanted to make the Yankees. I, all I was concerned about was my pitching motion. You know? He was also, he felt really bad about the way he'd written about Elston Howard in Ball Four. He felt that he had been unfair to him because... He, he, he portrayed Elston Howard as an Uncle Tom, and then he said he realized later, after he said that was his one regret in the book, that he said Elston Howard was the, was the first black player on the, in the Yankees, and um, he, he was just up against so much pressure, and it was so difficult for him. And he said, I guess I didn't appreciate what he was facing at the time. Oh, is that is that with um, the they owner? Insist on integrating the craft. Yeah, that was the owner of the White Sox. Beck. Was yeah. yeah. Bill Vack. Was it Bill Vack? I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. But it's a great story. Okay. Well, Bill Vack. Well, to make a, a a long story short, Bill Vack was kind of a kooky, one of a kind owner. But in the in the South, he they had the the stadium with the uh, once they had a you know colored only section where the uh, black fans or uh, fans of color would sit. And as I, as I recall the story, it culminates, like he goes, he, he tries to integrate the stadium a couple of times and then he sits. Yeah, he, one day he just decides, he, he comes out of the dugout and he goes and he sits in the, um, in the, the, the African-American section and the sheriff comes over to him, the local sheriff, and he says to him, what, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm watching the game. It's my team. And he said, well, you can't watch it here. This is, a this is a segregated section. And he said, I'm watching the game with my fans. Why, leave me alone. And they wanted to take him away. They wanted to arrest him. And he said, um, if, you, if you arrest me, I'm gonna pull my team out of here. You know, you know how much money my team brings into this, to this town? And, um, he's, and then he, for the rest of the season, he's, yeah, he spent every day watching the game from that section. There. So I guess there was, somebody asked before if there was a white fan who stood up. I guess Bill Veck in, in his way did. Yeah. By the way, we don't have to get into it because it's not baseball direct, but there's a great story in here about what the Beatles did about to integrate oh, yeah. uh, a venue as well. Right. Uh, I'm just curious. I'm obviously a baseball fan, but I also am a child of the 60s. 
baseball and the events of the 60s mesh so beautifully in your book. I wonder though if somebody was writing a more recent time period or maybe 30 years from now looking back to the millennium or whatever else, would baseball work as well? And does that say something about the times or about baseball or about events? You know, um, no, I, I, it's a great question. No, it's a great question. I think it, there's probably parallels, but I think what happened in the 60s to baseball changed the game so drastically and made it what it is today that the, the changes in baseball were so great that they're more obviously, that you can draw a parallel more obviously than to what's going on today. Um, I mean, you know, like the idea of free agency and the big salaries it's, and, and so much else that happened in the game kind of traces back to that time period. But I think there probably are parallels of things that go on in the game. I mean, you know, I think of uh, Carlos Delgado. I mean, if I were, if 30 years from now, if I were writing the book, I would think of Carlos Delgado not coming out for the Star Spangled Banner. You know, I would think of there were certain instances, but it seemed like uh, in the 60s it was happening all the time. I, I too, am a, a child of the 60s, and I think that one of, one of the fun parts for me in putting the book together, and I hope it's the same for people reading it, is I started piecing together what the hell happened. Like, you know, like I was following baseball and I was like six years old, so I didn't really know what was, I, I couldn't really appreciate what was going on the front page of the newspapers, but I was reading the back page and in putting it together, I started seeing how it really did affect the game and how the game, you know, like uh, um, Jose Feliciano uh, coming out and singing his version of the Star Spangled Banner um, in the uh, 68 World Series, which, which drew such ire because it was a blues version and people thought that it was blasphemy. I remember my parents going crazy about this guy. Like, what the hell does he think he's doing? And I didn't really understand. I thought the guy was just singing the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, he did it a little different. That's the way he sings. Like, let's get on with the game. So, so putting it together made me realize, oh, I see. It was happening right at the time here. Like, I relived a lot of it, you know? It came up. So I think, in, in answer to your original question, I'm sorry I went off on a tangent, but I think there are always connections between all sports and society, but the 60s, um, being that so many uh, event, seminal events happened in baseball and so many huge social events happened in our culture that it, it felt like a natural fit. I know this is a silly question, but mm -hmm. last week's book, 41 Faith, 42 Faith, and uh, this book didn't have an index. Uh, <laughs> I was curious. Well, it was a mistake. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the book so much, and if I had a friend that I wanted to tell about, I might say, Oh, there's that story about minor league baseball. I, yeah, that's I really a publisher's. That's really a publisher's decision, and I think it really boils down to money, because it costs to have a, it costs to have somebody do an index. Um, but if the book ever does another edition, I think that we'll yeah, we'll we'll put up the money and do it because it, it should have had an index. It, it's not our, it's not our call. Is that becoming common in the publishing industry? Yeah, I think anything that saves money is becoming common <laughs> in the publishing <laughs> industry. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly, as you said, it's not just us, it's a couple of, but yeah, I'm sorry. You're, you mentioned Red Smith, Justin uh, mm -hmm. Patterson. Yeah. And well, he would have been one of the old school guys as opposed to the chipmunks. But he wrote about the antitrust laws and the Sherman Act. He's one of the first guys to write about that. Mm -hmm. And put, let's call it baseball's indentured servitude in the context of history going back to that 19th century. I'm just wondering if you have anything more to add about Smith. Uh, I, I agree. I don't think he falls into either category, to tell you the truth. There are certain guys that don't either. Um, Bob Lipsight, when we talked to him, he said, no, I wasn't, I'm not, a, I wouldn't call myself a chipmunk, 
but I wouldn't call myself old school either. He said, I don't know, I'm just a writer, you know? Because I think those guys, especially columnists, you know, they, they can write about so many other things and they're not, they're not just writing about the game itself. So, um, yeah, and I think, you know, Red Smith, you know, he's, he's such an admirable writer, my God, he was great. And uh, yeah, I don't think he falls into either category. That's a really good question. That I is a good question. Know. I remember when they yeah. were voting for yeah, Marvin Miller. Right, exactly. That the votes came in differently, right? Depending on the, the where the teams were located. Well, in Arizona, teams, yeah. Marvin Miller got trounced in the voting by the teams that, that were in Arizona. But in Florida, which had many more Hispanic players, um, he won overwhelmingly. He was approved overwhelmingly. So. Um, I, I don't know. I think, you know, I think inevitably there would have been a union, but well, it may yeah. have, it may have. One of the things you realize when you line up all the events like this that are happening in society and in baseball, that things paved the way, like we, we spoke about Jim Bouton. Jim Bouton was an educated guy who was there at that time, who, you know, a lot of things happened that he wrote that book, but if he hadn't, somebody else would have. And Kurt Flood, um, was a guy who was at the far end of his career. Um, he had suffered a lot of indignities as a black player. He was traded to Philadelphia. He didn't want to go to Philadelphia. He knew the stories from other black players who had been there, what it was like to play for the Phillies at that time. So he didn't want to go there. But if he didn't come up with that lawsuit challenging his right to go to whatever team he wanted to go to, then some other player in that position that perfect storm would have happened to them. I think the same thing would have happened with unionization. I actually yeah. think the real, the big impetus behind the um, the unions, the unionization was um, the pension, the pension fund. I think that's what really motivated these guys more than anything. You know, Robin Roberts and who, there were three, what? Jim Bunning. Jim Bunning Jim and Bunning. a couple of other guys were. That's really, I think, what motivated them to to hire Marvin Miller and get the union. Um, get the union going. You know, at one point, the owners asked, when Marvin Miller's name was put forward, the owner said, well, we want, was it the owners who said to him, what do you think about, oh, no, no, it was, it was the committee, it was the, the, uh, the committee, the players committee that mm -hmm. said, we, we were wondering how you would feel about having Richard Nixon as your associate counsel, and he said, I hate Richard Nixon. <laughs> I would never, ever want. And Richard Nixon at the time, because this was in 65. Uh, yeah, 65. that conversation probably maybe even happened in 64. Well, 65, right? Yeah, he had no, he said, I have no, he said he doesn't know the first thing about, about union law. How, how could you possibly suggest this guy? Right. And he's anti-union. Everything about him is anti-union. So he said, yeah, if, if we have a great quote in there, excuse me, but we have a great quote from Marvin Miller saying, when I thought of Richard Nixon, I thought of nothing but Tricky Dick. I thought of nothing but that side of Richard Nixon. And there was no way if I was going to take on, I, he came from the Steelworkers Union, uh, Marvin Miller. He wanted to make a real union out of this. And he knew uh, if Nixon's there, this is gonna become another uh, company union, uh, uh, team owner run union. 
great book. Oh, thank uh, you. Somebody mentioned it, the index to a book. I've got to mention, I'm guilty. The first thing I did was look at the index. My dad interviewed Jackie Robinson in the 60s. Uh -huh. I used to for the New York Times. Let me see if it's in here. Oh, wow. So maybe it's just as well. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, as a young woman, how did you become a baseball fan? I grew up in Boston, where everybody's a Red Sox fan. Okay. And um, I, I loved the game ever since I was a kid. And um, Ever since I was a kid, my grandfather would always say, they're bums, can't you find another team? <laughs> and, um, and I'd say, no, I mean, it's okay that they lose. And he, and, and he would watch every game and just tell me all the time, find another team. These guys are just bums. And um, I don't know, baseball was really big in my family. And um, I used to go to the Red Sox games and sit in the bleachers all the time. And then when I was older, we got season tickets and, and the reserve grandstand. And um, I don't know, I just always loved baseball. And then when I moved to New York, I, I went to grad school at NYU in journalism. And um, I... I got a job at the production company for Major League Baseball. So that's how I started. And One of the stories of Wheezy getting season tickets at Fenway Park that always <clears throat> blew my mind being a Yankee fan, because uh, I've had season tickets at the, uh, up in the Bronx, is that in the off season, I don't know what year it was, so you're going back here in the 70s, I think, before buying the season ticket, they let her go into the stadium and sit in the various seats and choose what seat she wanted. Like, like the idea of doing that in the Bronx now, like, uh, you know, yeah. say, talking to like Brian Cashman and saying, listen, I'd like to try a few different seats before I write the check. Like it's just, it's completely unheard of. But I think that's not really a sign, a difference of Boston and New York. That's just a, a sign of the times changing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going to the park, you're gonna buy a season ticket, you're gonna, and you went there in the winter, right? It was snow, it was snow all over. Yeah, there was snow everywhere. And, and, and they just said, uh, walk around, pick your seat. I was with my brother and they said, pick your seat. And I said, pick my seat? And they said, yeah, and I said, wow. I always like the first base side. Okay, I you know section sixteen. That's an even number. I like that. And we, we picked section sixteen, row eight, and that was it. And then they said, "What seats do you want?" And I said, "Well, I don't want the one behind the pole and, um, because you know Fenway has a lot of obstructed seats." And so we we picked two seats, and then they said, "Okay, that's it." Yeah. Far <laughs> into my way of thinking. <laughs> you know, so Marvin Miller, and I think. The hinge of, of, of our current baseball swings is Marvin Miller. He changed the game profoundly. Absolutely. He's an interesting fellow, but if you look beyond the horizon, uh, it's, it, it's suddenly, so, so what, what he did was good for the players, but is it so good for the fans because everything's gotten so much more expensive. I mean, yeah. I, 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 think, I, think, I think Marvin Miller should be in, in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And of course, he'll never be because he was such a but he was a, he was a, he was a silver. He worked with silver, and he and he made this a union. Right. It's, it's but but the question is, how much is enough? Well, yeah. I mean, and that's not that's not really a, a question that I or we can answer. But I, I will say, Marvin Miller had a job to represent the players. No, no. And he did it beautifully. But, you know, there are ways of keeping that those costs down. There could be salary caps. There could be a lot of other things that the team that baseball chooses not to so do. So at one point, the owners were. And they, they, they starved their players, and now they just. They, they, the pendulum has gone, yeah, extremely the other way. Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, what do you think about it? 
What do I think about it? I think that I wish my season tickets were less expensive, and if there was a salary cap, I'd probably be able to afford them. Yeah, I think that the game, the problems, I think that the main issue, as it gets back to the book, is that what you're talking about, all of the, the game for its good sides and its warts, and that's certainly a wart, trace back to this decade. You know, and I think that even what you're talking about, this astronomical salary thing that's gotten totally out of hand, that's driving ticket prices up, that you can't go to Yankee Stadium and sit in a good seat for under like uh, hundreds of dollars. The game is it's totally exclusive. I think boils back to, but boils back to the 1960s. So this, yeah. This is back and forth. yeah. Well, I hope it comes back. I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of hard. Once the player, once somebody starts making that amount of money, it's hard to start telling the players now you're going to make less. It's, I don't know how they're going to reel that back, but. But no so. teams ever lose money. It seems right? like yeah. No teams it seems ever. Like they, they, they couldn't pay it. They wouldn't. They exactly. Wouldn't yeah. The only thing I want to add to this, it's a, it's Lee Lawrence is not here. Who always who always, uh, one of my good buddies who comes often, who I, uh, I unfortunately could not make it tonight. But Lee always makes sure that all the myths get called out. Mm -hmm. So it is a great myth that there's any correlation between ticket prices and player salaries. Yeah. They have not one has nothing to do with the other. The owners may want to push that story through the media, but that it's true. Not, it's a complete myth. It's true, and I did oversimplify it with that. You know, the television contracts really are what drive the player salaries. In fact, when you go back to the '60s, there you see it starting to happen then, not with. Um, uh, so directly as it is now, because you're not talking about teams owning a network like Yes or yeah. Nesson. But back then, with the advent of TV, they started negotiating uh, percentages of the TV money uh, in for the pension fund and for various uh, uh, other negotiations. So it was starting back then, too, even the TV network idea. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, civil rights and labor rights. I'm curious if you talk in the book at all about, uh, and I know very little who are part of the, the National Guard or on reserve in the armed forces. Because I know, I remember hearing stories of Buddy Harrelson meeting, missing a couple of weeks because he had to go to basic training. Um, you want that one? Or no, you go ahead. <laughs> we do, we actually. Do. Okay, we sure. do. Um, and the one story, uh, I mean, there's a number of stories in the book about the National Guard, but the one story that I'll share here was uh, given to us by a guy named George Gemelch. He's also an author. Um, but he was a prospect for the Tigers. Um, and at the time, I guess it was before the start of the 68 season. Do you remember what I the think start so. was? Um, he was a correspondence student. He now has his PhD and teaches anthropology, but he was a correspondence student at the time, and that was how he was staying out of the, the war, because there was uh, an exemption, you know, you, you didn't have to go if you were a student. Um, while he was studying, for the correspondent course at the stadium, at the spring training stadium. He walked into the front office to stretch his legs. He walked into the front office and he saw on the wall every player on the team, the starting lineups, every the 25 players, the minor leagues, everybody in the franchise. Yeah, the whole organization. The whole organization. The Tigers. The Tigers, right. <laughs> and they have marks next to their name. And he said, I sat there and in a few seconds I was able to figure out what was going on. They were monitoring who was uh, in the National Guard who was not in the National Guard and trying to keep them out of the draft. And now, if you look back, World War II in baseball, so many players were drafted for World War II, but so few were drafted for Vietnam, right? So he, I said to him, well, what do you think they were doing? They were pulling strings. He said, no, I don't believe they were pulling strings. What they were doing 
was they were advising the players on when to join the National Guard. They were accommodating, especially the good players, but all the players that they wanted. Um, okay, you can, you can join the team in June, do your National Guard duty. They were really working with them to make sure that they wouldn't get drafted. So they were getting a lot of help and advice that other players, uh, other men, not players, in the, in the country would have liked and, and didn't get. At the same time, he, all of a sudden there's a change in the law. Now they thought he was covered because he had the correspondence course. But they changed the law. The government changed the law, and all of a sudden, correspondence classes because, didn't count. Because LBJ had up the, um, <coughs> the he needed more, more soldiers. Right. Know, to send the, the, to the draft heated up. LBJ <coughs> uh, needed more soldiers. They changed the draft. Now, all of a sudden, Gemelch is not uh, excluded, right? He gets called in with two other people, and he's got to go down and take the physical. And, and two teammates. And two teammates. I don't remember the teammates' names. Yeah. They didn't go on to become players you would remember. I forget their names. Gates might have been one of them, I think. Anyway, the, um, the three of them are on the bus, and he said, on the way down, we're figuring out how we can fail this physical. He said, and not for a second did we think it was unpatriotic. He said, the mood on the team and the mood in the country was you get out of this any way you can. He said, we were, we were thinking of if we drank dishwashing soap, that would probably spike our sodium levels. I mean, he was going through all of these things. He said, but you know, they came up with the idea of drinking the dishwashing soap. He said, but we're on the bus, and where are we going to get the dishwashing soap? We're on the bus in the physical. He said, so we couldn't figure it out. So what he did was, when he got into the interview, they called his name, and he pretended not to hear them. He just kept looking forward, and then they called him in, and then they said, Mr. Good, until they got in front of his face, he said, oh, well, uh, I'm sorry. And then he pretended that he was hard of hearing. And he ended up being 4F, and he did it. And he said, the other two guys were 4F too. He goes, I don't know what the hell they did, but I know what I did. I faked not being able to hear. But if, but if it weren't for the correspondence mix-up, in his case, he would have been given advice on how to get into the National Guard and to stay out of the draft. The teams were helping the players. But having gone to the advice to stay out of the war myself, it happened throughout society. Mm -hmm. More people who middle income and higher. That's why what ended up happening in Vietnam, we started getting guys that had a lot of problems and, and, and all that. But Mm -hmm. There were people advising, like I, I, I had a first a student uh, firm that had an occupational permit mm -hmm. until I got out and volunteered with VISA, which wasn't the permit. But mm -hmm. uh, someone told me about going to the American Friends Service Committee. Mm -hmm. Quaker two were great, and, you know, and I went to before my draft board, but I, I was able to get out of it. That, sure. that was happening throughout society. The privileged, the privileged were being, were being uh, advised. And these guys, because they were on the team, joined the privileged. Yeah. Group. Well, one of the fun things in working on the book is getting surprised. What were your individual biggest surprises from your interviews and research? Well, my biggest surprise was that we met the deadline. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine was that Bob Costas agreed to do the forward. <laughs> um, the biggest surprise. Um, you know, there were a couple of things that maybe I should have known and didn't. I knew Jackie Robinson had been a, a Nixon supporter. I didn't realize how long he stood by Nixon. Like, I thought that by the time Kennedy took office that he probably changed his views, but he really stood by Nixon for a long time until he realized this is not the guy who's going to champion the civil rights movement. It's not that, I, I don't mean, for those who don't know that Jackie Robinson was a Richard Nixon supporter, I'm not saying that he supported Richard Nixon's uh, platform. He felt Nixon was in line with his uh, platform, which was pro-civil rights. 
but I think he, it, it was about the mid-60s that he finally realized Nixon's not going to deliver on what I was hoping him to deliver on. Also, the Democratic Party had been a party of, of racism and a party of, of Jim Crow in the South. <laughs> So it, it was a natural revolution. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah, it was the party of Abe Lincoln, the emancipation. Yeah. But um, he, he calculated badly. He, he, he thought, also felt Kennedy did. Well, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. he didn't trust Kennedy at all. And um, in the 1960 election, he supported uh, Nixon, even after Nixon refused to step in and help Martin Luther King when Martin Luther King had been arrested for, um, for the sit-in at a, at a at a department store in downtown Atlanta, and it was Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, um, who stepped in and called the judge and said, you gotta release this guy. He's, he's, so you know. is, is, was there, all, all the huge number of people in this book, you know, heroes and villains, was there one that you liked the most, or hate the most? Well, John loves, he, he gets a real kick out of Denny McLean. Oh, well, yeah, McLean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> I mean, Denny McLean, the stories, I mean, he's, he's, I mean, he's walking, it's the all-star game, and he didn't, and he's drunk on the field. I mean, he's, he's play. he's, he's leaving games, uh, getting on a plane, flying out to Vegas, gambling, coming back. He, he, he wins 31 games that year, right? He's drinking 24 cans of Pepsi a day. I mean, here's a guy with absolutely no work ethic at all that year. I mean, he's, he's gambling, he's drinking, he's partying, he's, he's drinking at least 24 cans of Pepsi a day, right? To the point where they endorsed him, and then he becomes uh, in cahoots with the guy who endorsed him from Pepsi, and now they're gambling together and booking bets, and he wins 31 games. I mean, it's almost unfathomable that he was able to do it. So I, I find that like a story like that just fascinating. I saw Danny McLean pitch for the Douglas Dukes in 1962. Oh, wow. okay. They, they was he a standout then? That oh, he was brilliant. And they yeah. brought him from, from the, that was a, that was a deep mind. They brought him right up to, to, to Major League, yeah. Right, we're right, running, right. we're starting to run short of podcast time. Is there anyone who has not yet asked a question who would like to? Okay, so I have a, a one last question. Sure. And then I just want to read something from the book. Okay. Uh, my question is, and maybe because Jackie Robinson is on everyone's mind, you've mentioned him many times, this Saturday is the 70th anniversary, last week's book, uh, Ed Henry was here for 42 Faith. Uh, you can certainly make an argument that Jackie Robinson changed society. Uh, <laughs> he predates Martin Luther King, he predates Rosa Parks, he predates Board, uh, Brown v. Board of Education. In the 60s, you've taken us through quite a bit of the drastic changes uh, that baseball went through. Do you think in the 60s, baseball and, and everything going on in the 60s, in the 60s, did baseball change society or did society change baseball? It's a little of both, I, I think. I think it's a little of both. I think baseball would want you to believe they changed society. I think the fact that they integrated with Jackie Robinson and it was such a symbolic integration and so big that they were ahead of society but when you stop and look at what was really going on, they weren't really integrated. So I, I think it's like a chicken and egg, uh, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But I, I, t I tend to think society changed baseball, I think more than baseball changed society. I don't think the owners would have changed a lot until they were forced to make changes. Yeah, I think there, was just, there were just a lot of outside influences in, in baseball that could, finally could not be ignored. And uh, I just want to close, uh, for those of you who are uh, the regulars here, you know that 
I don't really let the authors come and like open a book to page 17 and read uh, five pages. I always kind of find that boring, even if the book is great. <laughs> so I, we always find this to be much more interesting. But that said, I just want to read something uh, because uh, I want to just highlight the quality of the writing of John and Wheezy, and then we're going to give the last word to a certain announcer who they quote in this book. Uh, and this follows, uh, Robert Kennedy was just shot. Uh, and Drysdale, Don Drysdale is going for the, uh, who, well, we'll get into part of this, but Don Drysdale <coughs> is going for the consecutive scoreless innings record. Robert Kennedy was just shot. So I just want to read a little of what they wrote, and then we'll lead into something. Uh, Kennedy was brought to Central Receiving Hospital and then transferred to Good Samaritan Hospital for surgery. Don Drysdale heard the news of the shooting on the car radio while driving home to Hidden Hills from Dodger Stadium. A man who usually kept his emotions in check, Drysdale couldn't do so this time. The announcement was just too painful, not only because Kennedy had mentioned the pitcher in his speech, but also because the two had had a personal connection. They'd met twice before, once at a Job Corps affair and then at Hickory Hill, Kennedy's estate in Virginia. Drysdale, along with the rest of the country, spent the next 24 hours waiting anxiously for news of Kennedy's condition. Then, in the early hours of June 6, it arrived. Kennedy was gone. He died with his wife Ethel and sister-in-law Jackie at his side. Two days later, Drysdale was getting ready to face the Phillies at Dodger Stadium. His focus was not on his pursuit of Walter Johnson's record, but on the TV, where he watched the pallbearers at Arlington National Cemetery carry Robert Kennedy's body to rest 30 yards from the grave of his older brother, John. The news images were compounded by an announcement that investigators in London had captured the man suspected of assassinating Martin Luther King. After a nine-week manhunt, police had arrested small-time crook James Earl Ray at Heathrow Airport. Drysdale took the mound at 2.30 that afternoon. In honor of his slain friend, he wore a black armband on his white uniform. Dodgers announcer Vince Scully opens his broadcast with a heavy heart. Vince Scully. They say the eye of the storm is the quiet part. And here, Dodger Stadium has suddenly become the eye of the storm. A large crowd, approximately 50,000, and the winds of all kinds of emotions swirling around the ballpark. Certainly, there are still the winds of sorrow. What a dreadful, drab, and heartbreaking day it has been. But as the gray skies now slowly start to disappear tonight, so too the feelings in the ballpark are turning. And from almost the pits of despair, we concentrate on a child's game. A ball, a bat, and some people hitting it, throwing it and catching it. And particularly, Don Drysdale's Big Night in Baseball. The name of the book, One Nation Under Baseball, How the 1960s Collided with the National Pastime, uh, written beautifully by John Florio and Weezy Shapiro. Thank you so much.